ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. These days, we're all investors, trying to be smart with our money despite our worst impulses. But at iShares, we believe that deep down inside of every investor is a better investor. One that's just waiting to be let out. Explore iShares ETFs and insights and let your best investor out. Visit iShares.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be John Souther, co-founder and president of Innovator ETFs, who, I'll tell you what, Innovator is having quite the year so far. I show nearly $3.5 billion has gone into their ETF lineup in 2022. They're now at nearly $9 billion in assets overall. And for those of you already familiar uh, with Innovator, you probably already know the story here which is Innovator offers what are called Defined Outcome ETFs or Buffer ETFs. Uh, these are products that allow you to gain exposure to various equity markets up to a certain cap, and then there's a buffer to the downside. So for example, they have an ETF that allows you to get S&P 500 price exposure over the next year up to say a 15 or 20% cap, and then you're protected from the first 15% to the downside. And as you can imagine, because of the market environment we've been in this year, uh, with the S&P 500 now down, what, about 21%, defined outcome ETFs are uh, getting some more looks from investors and advisors. Uh, so John and I are going to dive into these ETFs this week. We'll talk about how they work, the pros, the cons, and then we'll also spend a few minutes discussing their most recent ETF launch, which this is interesting. It's a risk-managed Tesla ETF. So a single stock ETF that has an upside cap and a uh, downside buffer on the price of Tesla stock. So I uh, look forward to discussing that. Also joining me this week will be Rich Kerner, Senior ETF Sales Specialist at Touchstone Investments, who actually just entered the ETF space back at the end of July. Uh, they now have four ETFs, already nearly $200 million in assets, by the way. And these are what I would call high-conviction, actively-managed strategies. There's two equity ETFs and two fixed-income ETFs, all using the uh, transparent ETF wrapper. So Rich will give us the backstory on why Touchstone entered the ETF space, and how they're attempting to differentiate here. I, I will say they have a unique model where uh, they're using sub-advisors for their funds. So we'll certainly get into that. Now to start this week, really excited about this. I have on the line with me, Roxana Islam, who is Associate Director of Research at Vetify, making her ETF Prime debut, by the way. And she will be a, a, a regular contributor moving forward. I, I think you're going to find her various areas of expertise to be uh, rather intriguing and certainly a nice addition to this podcast. So let's chat with Roxana now. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. An area that I've been talking a lot about is Bitcoin versus gold. So right now in the environment that we're in, um, a lot of investors are concerned over those rising rates. Roxana, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so look, we have a, uh, a great topic to dive into this week. But before we do that, since some of our listeners may not be familiar with you and your background, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your current role with Vetify. Yeah, sure. So um, great intro you already gave on me, Roxana Islam, Associate Director of Research at Vetify. Um, you know, my career in ETF started many years ago at Wells Fargo. I worked in closed-end fund and ETF research. Um, but then I sort of switched gears, and for probably six or seven years, I worked in sell-side equity research covering individual stocks and transportation, logistics, and electric vehicle industries at Steeple. And it wasn't until last year in 2021 that I joined Spotify through what was once Alarian, and I cover our thematic indexes, which include anything from EVs to e-commerce to blockchain. And I really incorporate a lot of that research from my early careers and look at those megatrends macroeconomic data, et cetera, while also doing some of that in-depth stock analysis on the constituents. Well, I certainly look forward to having you as a regular contributor to uh, ETF Prime. I, I think we could use a little more expertise, particularly in the thematic space, which uh, is yeah. clearly uh, one of your areas of expertise. And that's actually where we're going to look this week. So we're going to look at two thematic ETF categories that I, I find both of these pretty interesting, though certainly different. So electric vehicles, in crypto. And what I like about this, we'll get into some details on the categories themselves, but I think more importantly, you're going to paint the picture for us of how when investors are evaluating thematic ETFs, they really need to separate the buzz from sort of the reality of the situation. Because investors may hear about certain companies within a thematic category where there is a lot of media buzz and hype, and investors get excited. They want to own these companies. But then when you actually look at the reality of the situation in terms of what these thematic ETFs hold, the buzzy companies aren't always there, right? So there can be this uh, mismatch between what investors might expect and what they're actually getting from thematic ETFs. I guess anything you would add to that before we uh, get into some detail here? Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that, you know, thematic ETFs, they've, they've been around for, for years, but I think they just really shot up around that 2020, 2021 timeframe. And I think it's really important to remember what was happening during that time period. Even though it wasn't that long ago, it was just completely different environment than what we're in right now. So that was when, you know, broader equity markets were doing well, and we saw the emergence of all these stacks and stocks and crypto became really popular. So investors were just becoming much more confident. They were attracted to these individual stocks that were in the media or on Reddit, and they were returning these massive amounts in short periods of time. And a lot of investors were maybe thinking that they were buying the next Tesla or the next Amazon or the next Apple. And I think this sentiment sort of bled over to thematic investing. You know, when I think about thematic investing, it's not necessarily all about that hype and that glamour. It's more than that. It's really investing in a long-term trend that's based on any sort of shift in behavior or technology or even regulations. And many, but not all of the holdings are individual stocks and are growth-oriented and higher risk-reward stocks. So there is a bit of crossover between some of these new stocks, hyped-up stocks and thematic investing. But you know, while there are some ETFs that that may even focus on these specific stocks. The majority of these um, thematic ETFs are built around indexes, and they have these revenue streams, these market cap streams, trading streams that aren't typically inclusive of these highly volatile stocks. And I think that's where a lot of that misalignment comes from. Okay, so that is the perfect jumping off point, because let's get into the electric vehicle category in particular, which, by the way, that is a, uh, a crowded space on the ETF side, and we should probably talk about that as well. But yeah. You've previously written about how uh, there were a lot of new entrants into the electric vehicle industry when you look back at 2020 and 2021. And of course, there was a lot of uh, associated media attention as well. But then when you start looking at index and ETF construction, those companies 
uh, aren't always there. So let's start there. Explain what's been going on in the electric vehicle space in particular. Yeah, so I think this sector is really interesting because you you kind of have these two separate stories happening at the same time, you know, particularly within the passenger EV space, which I think is one of the, the more interesting, more relatable um, portions of the EV industry. So first, you know, you have these new entrant startup companies that are building these really cool high-tech cars, and it all seems like they're trying to catch up with Tesla, which has probably over 70 75% of the market share for battery electric vehicles within the U.S. And then you also have the legacy automakers, and these are the companies like Ford, Toyota, and they're, they're recognizing that regulations around vehicle emissions are changing. So they're slowly attempting to shift production from the standard internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles. So I think investors and, and consumers in general are more excited about the new entrance story at first. You know, not only were these products really flashy and high tech, but then the stocks were extremely exciting. Um, and, you know, a lot of these companies, they could eventually be big players in the space, but, you know, right now it's still extremely early. And, you know, honestly, it's not easy building an EV. It's, it's a very high tech, large, expensive product. And then you combine that with supply chain issues. And many of these uh, new entrants that you see in the space, they haven't even really started production or hit revenue yet. So that's sort of the reality of the EV space in general. A lot of new entrants and some seem very promising, but not much concrete yet. It's, it's mostly based around Tesla, and then you have the legacy automakers, and then you have the supporting industries like the batteries and charging infrastructure. So when you look at EV ETFs, they actually end up reflecting that market and not really those smaller high-risk stocks that may get some of that disproportionate media attention. Um, you know, when you look at these ETFs, most are built around these rules-based indexes, and they actually end up sort of hedging that exposure to some of those smaller, more volatile stocks. Um, you know, for example, there's revenue restrictions, and as I was saying, a lot of these companies haven't even hit production or revenue yet. Um, and then, you know, maybe even easier to understand, there's market cap restrictions. So I'll give a few examples. So when you're looking at ETFs like CARV or DRIV, those are both EV indexes, they both follow... Uh, sorry, both EV ETFs. They both follow indexes that have minimum market cap weightings of, I believe, 500 million. So you're eliminating a lot of these smaller EV companies like um, Electromechanica, for instance, ticker SOLO. Um, for instance, that only has like 150 million market cap and just starting to go into production. So companies like that are sort of, they're either not present in the index because maybe they cap the index at 100, or if you're looking at some of these more um, cohesive ETFs indexes like the ETF IDRV, they have a slightly lower market cap restriction, 300 million, I believe. So you do see a lot of the smaller EV stocks in them, but even then you are looking at a market cap weighted index, market cap weighted ETF, and so the weights you have there are well below 1% for, for that sort of stock. So I think that there's some disconnect between what you'd expect the stocks that are getting the media attention and reality, and that's why it's really important to know the theme you're trying to capture versus what's actually inside your ETF. I can hear your colleague uh, Todd Rosenbluth's voice in the back of my head saying, you have to look under the hood, which of course is perfect <laughs> looking at electric yeah. vehicle ETFs. But it's amazing, like the tickers that uh, you, you just threw out. So CARS, C-A-R-Z, that's the First Trust NASDAQ Global Auto Index ETF. Um, iDrive, IDRV, that's the iShare self-driving EV and tech ETF. I mean, I could go on here. GlobalX has one, which is DRIV. Fidelity has one, FDRV. Simplify, uh, Spider, Crane Shares, uh, Smart ETFs. There's a Smart ETF, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, ticker MOTO, M-O-T-O. Capital Link, Next Gen Vehicles and Technology ETF. I mean, there's a lot of products out here. Well, one thing I'm curious about is you went into some detail there. Do you view um, battery tech ETFs as a decent proxy for playing the electric vehicle space? I, I ask only because uh, obviously battery technology is such a critical factor in electric vehicles. And we have seen some ETFs come to market over the past few years. So like I, I think of the Global X lithium and battery tech ETF, LIT. Amplify has a lithium and battery tech ETF ticker B-A-T-T, uh, Wisdom Tree, W-B-A-T. Do you view those as a decent proxy for electric vehicles? 
So I think it's a little tough to answer. I think somewhat because if you look at these battery tech ETFs, um, there's actually a lot of crossover between the holdings because these EV ETFs do hold supporting industries like batteries, infrastructure, et cetera. Um, and if you look at the correlations, they've actually performed, I'd say, about 0.7 to 0.8 um, correlation. So it's pretty high. Um, but there are some key differences. For instance, when you're looking at these battery tech ETFs, they do have higher exposure to, to places like China. You know, a lot of the materials being mined are, are not from the U.S. Um, and, you know, also you do have that exposure to materials, to commodities, which has done done a bit better than some of the, the other sectors um, of, of the S&P, for instance. So when you look at the battery tech ETFs, it looks like some of them actually outperformed um, the EV stocks uh, year to date, at least. So, so it, it's pretty interesting because, yes, you're right, you can't have an EV without the battery. That's, that's basically what makes it an electric vehicle. Um, but I think there are some key differences that could possibly have the two diverge in the future. You uh, briefly mentioned performance there. If we put aside the very important need to obviously look under the hood of, of all of these ETFs, do you have any thoughts on the broader market environment around uh, the, the EV or, or battery tech category? Because I, I look at the performance of electric vehicle ETFs and battery tech ETFs Many of these are down fairly significantly more than the S&P 500. So do you think this is the same story as with uh, sort of the broader disruptive tech category overall, high growth stocks where we have higher interest rates just punishing everything? Or do you think there's more to it here? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is that these are higher growth, um, sort of disruptive tech-oriented stocks inside so you do see a lot of that negative market sentiment, especially now. But I do think there's a key difference between the EV space and some of the other thematic spaces. I think the EV space is actually sort of as concrete as you can get when you come to a thematic idea, because we do know that there are these regulations coming in the pipeline, some as soon as 2030, um, and not just within the U.S., globally that we need to switch to these cleaner emission vehicles. So electric vehicles are happening. It's just a question of how do you capture that? How will it materialize? Will it materialize through these legacy automakers? Will it materialize through these new entrants? Or will Tesla just uh, hold that market share in the future? So I think that's the real question is really how to capture it. And I think that's sort of the beauty of, of an ETF is it can sort of diversify away some of that single single stock risk that you get when you're trying to find the next Tesla out there. One thing I'm always curious about, you look at this category. I, I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of competition here. When you look at a, a thematic ETF segment like this and you see so many products out there, what in your mind is the recipe for success? What do you think determines the winner's longer term here? Um, so, you know, a lot, you're right, there's a lot of these ETFs out there. A lot of them look very similar. A lot of them perform very similarly. Um, I think it's key to remember that a lot of these themes, not just EVs, but they're in their early stages. They're constantly involving, evolving. So you have to build an index or ETF that's broad enough to encompass that theme and account for how that theme will change. Um, for instance, I'll just use EVs as an example. There's a difference between electric and autonomous vehicles, and I don't think many people really, really realize that. So there's not really yet any fully autonomous vehicles, but there are some in the works. There's also electric vehicles beyond cars and trucks. There's electric aircraft, there's electric passenger drones, and there's actually already several public companies in that space. So you have to sort of anticipate all this and, and build this into the index, into the ETF. Otherwise, you're looking at constant methodology or strategy changes, and we have too many of those, it's not necessarily a good thing. And I think, on the other hand, you also have to worry about being too broad, especially in these market cap weight indexes, because otherwise you end up having something really similar to the NASDAQ 100. Clearly, your area of expertise, which I think you're demonstrating very well here today, is, is in thematics. I, I'm just curious, you know, look, we're not here to dispense investment advice, uh, you know, on this podcast, everybody do your own ho uh, homework. But how do you view thematic ETFs in the context of a portfolio overall? Like, like, how do you think investors should use thematic ETFs? Yeah, so I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, a lot of these are higher growth, higher risk reward investments. So for most investors, they should be a smaller portion of the portfolio used maybe as a supplement to broader core holdings. Um, alternatively, alternatively, I think there are certain spaces 
um, that could be used as sector replacements, like EV ETFs, for instance, could replace an automotive ETF. But you know, in general, these aren't going to be your your core holdings in your portfolio, right? These are just these are going to supplement some of your your broader holdings. Yes, well said. You, you have the core, and then you can add a little spice to it with thematic ETFs. Yeah. Um, all right. So a, a few minutes left. Let's uh, quickly pivot here to one of my favorite topics: crypto and, and blockchain <laughs> ETFs, which is another very crowded uh, category, by the way. Um, I, I guess broadly, maybe using the same type of lens you just use for electric vehicles. I mean, what are a few key considerations investors should be aware of of here as you look at this space? Yeah, so a lot of similarities to draw between the two spaces, actually. Um, it, it's important to remember the sector is also still very new. Um, if you think about Bitcoin itself, it's been around you know, less than 15 years at this point. And some of these crypto and blockchain equity companies, they've only been around for a couple of years. And I think over the past couple of years, when we saw, um, you know, the market outperform, this was a segment that was largely sentiment-based. And I think now there's actually a shift, and there's a lot happening in the pipelines. Um, you know, a lot of regulations, a lot of institutional adoption that sort of makes the industry more established and more legitimate. So I don't think it's really, um, you know, run its course. I think there's still a lot of, of room for it to run, but. Uh, you know, regardless, I think it's another important area for investors to do due diligence in and really understand what you're investing in. And so I talk about this a lot, but there's a ton of different um, blockchain crypto ETFs. So, for example, if you're an investor that really just wants to track the price of Bitcoin through an ETF product, they would use something like BITO, which is a, a futures-based ETF which with a high correlation to Bitcoin. But then on the thematic side, you have blockchain and crypto equity ETFs like uh, DLOK and and SATO, which hold companies that support this whole ecosystem. And with that, you're getting some exposure to the Bitcoin prices, but it's similar to the concept of EV ETFs, where you're actually trying to capture a shift. And with EVs, it's that shift from the traditional automobiles to electric cars. But with blockchain ETFs, you're mostly investing in that shift in financial markets and maybe that shift from internet to Web3. And so I think it's just important to remember, like, some of these popular blockchain ETFs can also get pretty broad. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it depends on what you're really looking for, what you're trying to invest in. As I was saying, you have some, like, BLCN and BLKC, and those sort of extend that that market to some of those blockchain adopters and enablers. And there, you sort of get more of an exposure to those diversified tech companies. And like I said, not necessarily a bad thing. You just have to make sure that what you're investing in lines up with your expectations. Well, Roxana, absolutely fantastic perspective this week. Certainly uh, look forward to having you regularly contribute on this podcast. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much. I had a great time. That was Roxana Islam, Associate Director of Research at Betify. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. My next guest is John Southern, co-founder and president of Innovator ETFs, who currently offers nearly 90 ETFs, about $9 billion in assets. This for an issuer whose first product only launched in August of 2018. <laughs> Pretty impressive. And you look this year, their lineup has taken in close to $3.5 billion in new money. Now, of course, Innovator pioneer the defined outcome ETF uh, category, and they've continued to innovate here, uh, pun intended. So for example, they recently launched the Innovator Hedge Tesla Strategy ETF, ticker TSLH. This is a a risk-managed single-stock ETF. Uh, They offer a number of other risk-managed products as well, including on the uh, bond side. And I now have uh, John on the line with me from Chicago, John, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. 
Hey, thanks, Nate. Uh, happy to be here today. Thank you. All right. So, look, I know uh, nobody likes to see the market go down, but if we're being honest, this has to be just the type of environment innovators been waiting for, where I, I feel like your product lineup can really shine. And as I mentioned, I mean, nearly $3.5 billion into the Innovator ETF lineup this year. I, I have to assume it's been at least a little bit easier to find an audience this year now that everything's not just uh, going up in a straight line. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly right, Nate. I, it's, um, <clears throat> I, you know, you, you hate to capitalize on, on, you know, scary times in the market. Um, but you got to remember, you know, when we first launched these, as you said, it was in August of 2018. And that was at a very different time. You know, we were on a 10 year bull market. And, you know, the thought of a, a defensive type product was you know, at that time, fell on a lot of deaf ears and uh, volatility was at an all time low. And, um, you know, so our caps were lower as a result and uh, rates were down low. So it, uh, caps were lower. And so, you know, we, we launched the product into a really tough environment for, for protection and, and, and downside buffers and, and that type of thing. And so, um, yeah, we had to lay the groundwork and it finally, um, you know, the, <laughs> the market cooperated, uh, if you will, uh, in the last last year for sure well and just to give listeners a data point i mean i i feel like innovator has been you know pretty successful from the get-go but that three and a half billion in inflows so far this year that's more than doubled your previous best year so i show in 2020 and 2021 both of those you took in around 1.4 1.5 billion so i think it shows that acceleration there um john we're going to get into some of your uh, etfs obviously in more detail but i do want to take a quick step back here because I'm guessing some of our listeners might not be aware that you actually co-founded PowerShares, which, of course, is yeah. now under the Invesco brand, fourth largest ETF issuer. Again, I don't want to get off track here, but I, I always love a little ETF history. Can you just tell us a, a bit about that experience, maybe how you got involved with PowerShares and what that ride was like? Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was a different world back then. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, uh, the, the biggest difference is, is people didn't even really know what an ETF was. And those that, that did understand them back in the early 2000s, they were, or were aware of them. They didn't really understand how they work. So, uh, so yeah, it was a really exciting time. I, I barely knew what an ETF was back then myself. But, um, <clears throat> you know, and what I think what we were trying to do when we, when we started PowerShares was, I, I, you know, my background had been quantitative analysis and uh, trying to pick stocks through through uh, you know computer algorithms that type of thing and so we we thought you know what if, if we're going to select stocks or try to outperform the market why why would you put that in a, into a mutual fund wrapper why not try to put that into an ETF wrapper and and like I said back then I didn't really have a full appreciation of of what the ETF wrapper did or provided um, and and really the primary thing that uh, the ETF wrapper provides is not only liquidity and that type of thing, but it also uh, allows you to to tax manage the funds uh, very well. And so, you know, uh, uh, we you know in PowerShares we we never paid a capped gain distribution for any of our products or any of our ETFs uh, for for decades and or a decade at least until I left. But um, and that's you know nothing to do with our savvy tax management ability is just the the in-kind mechanism of an ETF allows you to, um, you know, tax manage in a very efficient way. So so we were really, you know, the, the PowerShare story was like, hey, this has been, people are doing this in a mutual fund. Why wouldn't you at least consider doing very similar things in, in an ETF wrapper? And, you know, the, the SEC hadn't allowed actively managed ETFs at the time. And so we we kind of got a little bit creative and, and basically made indexes more like active management. We just said, well, if if an ETF is only allowed to replicate an index, well, then why wouldn't you just make the index, you know, have have a little different goal for the index, and that's to try to outperform the market or to to manage risk or to uh, you know maybe. Um, mitigate, you know, single stock exposure that are that's found in some indices, that that type of thing. So um so we really sought to redefine what a what an index was so that we could replicate um you know 
not just pure beta indexes, but indexes that tried to achieve something. Um, so yeah, it was a fun ride, and uh, it was it was fun to educate people on what an ETF is, what it does, and um, yeah. So it's uh, it's a very different world today, much more crowded space, and uh, as you know, everything under the sun seems like it's been done, but um, you know, creative people think of more ideas all the time. So. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of the background of, of PowerShares. And then, how was it that you came to co-found Innovator ETFs? Yeah, well, uh, you know, Bruce Bond and, and I had started PowerShares, like a, you know, like you said, back in two thousand and three. And uh, you know, the the running joke in the office is that after we sold PowerShares, uh, Bruce's wife wanted him out of the house, and so we had to, you know, find something for him to do. But um, we, you know, the the, the more serious answer is that, um, you know, I was, well, actually I was pitched an insurance product that had like a structured note <clears throat> embedded in it. So in other words, if it, the insurance product allowed you, it was like a, basically a universal or a whole life policy that allowed you to invest the assets of the insurance policy in the market, but it also had downside protection as well. And so um, it's basically like a crediting strategy in an ET, in a, I'm sorry, in a, in a life insurance wrapper. And, and I, you know, at the time I didn't really, <clears throat> I've never looked at an annuity or, or a structured note myself. And so I didn't have a, a ton of interest, but the, the, the insurance wrapper got me somewhat interested. And <clears throat> so I'd say similar to power shares, you know, the, the question was like, you know, maybe we shouldn't, maybe this shouldn't be done in a mutual fund wrapper. Maybe it should be done in an ETF wrapper. And so, a lot of the, the the products that the insurance and banks provide, you know, the, the question is why hasn't that been done in an ETF, and and could it be done in an ETF? And so, um, so it was a, it was a steep learning curve for me and for for all of us, just because I didn't have a ton of derivatives experience and, and structured note and annuity experience, and um, but but that's what we that's what we set out to do was to. Um, to, to bring a lot of the products that are, that are offered by insurance companies and, and banks and put them in the ETF wrapper. Um, you know, my, uh, my youngest daughter, I have four daughters, and my youngest started working at Chick-fil-A when she was 14 years old. And, um, you know, I, I thought they had child, child labor laws to prevent that kind of thing, but I was proud of her, of course, and she worked there for, for many years. And um, still to this day, her favorite restaurant is, Chick-fil-A, which is, you know, usually when you work at a fast food restaurant, you never want to eat there again, but she, she still loves it. So it's, it's the same thing. Uh, it's the same idea, concept. The, the, the more I've done ETFs and now I've done it for most of my career, the more I appreciate the, the, the chassis or the, the vehicle itself and, and what it provides. And so, you know, when compared to a, an insurance product or a structured note, um, you know, what, what we've done is we've, we've created liquidity, you know, in the product. The, many insurance products and, and bank-issued products are, are highly illiquid. And, um, you know, so we've added the intraday liquidity of an ETF. We've, we've added transparency um, and, then the, and then the tax piece, which I touched on before, um, which I really can't state enough, is, is what we bring to bear. And, and, you know, and the other thing, too, is you, you remove the counterparty risk or the credit risk associated with the, the issuer of a, of a structured note. And so that's why we were pretty excited to, to figure out if it could be done in an ETF. And, you know, the SEC was like scratching their head, like, what are you guys trying to do? And uh, so it took a little while, and, uh, but we were glad we, we took the effort and, and, and took the time to, to figure it out and get it, get it uh, approved uh, and, and out into the marketplace. All right, so the bread and butter of your ETF lineup is obviously the defined outcome ETFs. And I've covered these quite a bit on the podcast, but we do always have new okay. listeners joining us. So I, I thought it'd be good to have you just explain how these work and any other nuances. And I'll, I'll give you a specific series as an example. So let's use the October series on the S&P 500 since these will be resetting soon. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll just note there's the U.S. Equity Buffer ETF, ticker BOCT. There's the U.S. Equity Power Buffer ETF, POCT, and then the uh, U.S. Equity Ultra Buffer ETF, ticker UOCT. Just walk us through the basic design of these and, and, and how these work for somebody who is unfamiliar with them. Yeah. 
at, you know, at, at the highest level you can take it, it's, it's really straightforward. It's, it's for the person that says, you know what, I, I do want to stay invested in the market. I know that's the right thing to do. I should, I should own stocks. And, but I'd also like to maybe have some downside buffer or protection or, um, some type of risk management on the downside if the market does go down. And I'm, I'm willing to give up something for that, which is the upside, some of the upside. And so many of our products, or most of them, I would say the vast majority, have, have caps. And so it's for the person that says, you know what, if I could stay invested in the S&P 500 ETF, but have a 15% buffer. So if the market goes down uh, 15% or less, the, the fund will not go down at all over a one-year period. Most of our products are, they have these uh, what we call annual resets where uh, they, they don't expire, but they, they just reset every year. So if you're, if today, October 2000, or almost October 2022, if you're saying a year from now, I, st- I want to stay invested in the S&P 500, but I also, if I could buffer the first 15% of losses, um, I'd be willing to, to cap my upside um, to to obtain that. So, like for instance, for the for the the, the the so we have different buffer levels as well. We have nine, fifteen, thirty percent. So for a fifteen percent buffer, that means you're protected for the first fifteen percent, and then you participate in losses. You you you're willing to cap your exposure to the S and P five hundred at eighteen percent, or or are the estimated caps for for uh, October one. So, um, so if your if your mindset is like, well, I'm happy with if I could get 18% return on the market, that would be great, and and I'm also willing to, uh, but for the benefit of being capping myself at 18%, I also get a 15% buffer. So, um, you know, on a 9% buffer, so you're only you're protected for that first 9%, and then you have exposure to the market. There's currently there'll be a 26% cap, roughly. Um, for the October reset here. So, um, so yeah, again, really high level. It's, I, I, I want to stay invested in the market. I know it's the right thing to do, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm nervous. And so I'd, I'd want some type of, um, downside buffer built in and I'm willing to cap my upside over a one year period for that. And I think, you know, I think, I think investors like the clarity of it all. They, you know, like, Oh, a year from now, I, you know, you you can kind of, not not make a bet, but make a uh, express your opinion on what you think the market could do. Uh, you know, if you're if you're saying, well, yeah, I think I think the market being down between zero and fifteen percent is a is a real possibility. Then then you can buy our power buffer product. Or if you think the market could be down twenty five percent or thirty percent, then we have an ultra buffer that that protects for the first thirty percent. So uh, so it's a way for you to in, in effect like tailor returns to what uh, to meet your investment risk and your your you know your profile of what you want to achieve in your portfolio. So, yeah, I thought yeah, that was a high level. Yeah, no, yeah. I thought that was a good description. If I could just sort of restate what you walked through, so investors can buy the upcoming uh, October U.S. Equity Power Buffer ETF, and if they buy that on day one, and we can talk a little bit more about that, they're protected from the first fifteen percent down move in the S and P five hundred. If the S&P 500 goes up, they're going to capture that up to a cap, which I believe you said was a little over 15%. And I'll I'll add that there are no dividends here. I think we should mention that. The fees, as I look at your ETF lineup, many of these are around, excuse me, 79 basis points. And I'll also note that in terms of the exposure itself, that's being gained through what are called flex options or flexible exchange options. Um, Is all that correct? Anything you would add to that? Yeah, I didn't. I, yeah, thanks, Nate. I didn't really get under the hood as much, but you're you're exactly right. How do we do that? We 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 buy. Um, it's it's through a portfolio of of flex options uh, that you mentioned, and so um, and it's pretty straightforward. It's a static portfolio of options that um, basically you you buy a, a deep in the money call on on SPY, which is the S and P five hundred ETF. Uh, so when you buy a deep in the money call on, on SPY, that gives you one-to-one uh, tracking of the market. And so that's how we achieve that. 
And then we also um, basically um, we buy a put spread. So that, that enables, you know, for the 15% buffer, that, that limits uh, downside for that first 15%. So we're, so we, we buy that call option, that deep in the money call on, on, on the spider. And then we, we, we buy these, the put option to, to provide that protection from zero to 15%. That option package costs more than money that we have. And so if it's, you know, if you have a hundred dollars to spend, that would cost you about $106. So, so we have to sell a call option uh, to finance that. And that's what, that's what sets the cap. So I said on the 15% buffer, the, the caps are looking like they'll be about 18%. And so that's what selling that call option is what caps your performance. So you only participate up to that, up to that cap. And, and like like you mentioned, it's it's generally over a one year period. And then you know once you over the, after the the options expire a year later, nothing happens as far as you know. You don't have to sell the ETF; you can just hold on to it. And then a new options package is put in place with with new caps and um, that type of thing. And all that happens in a you know tax efficient manner. Uh, you, you shouldn't expect any capital gain distributions in the product. John, uh, just a few minutes left here. I keep mentioning the point-to-point aspect of these products. I, I always mm-hmm. like to emphasize this when, when covering defined outcome ETFs. Uh, I, I just think it's important for investors to understand this. And I want to reiterate that the initial upside cap and downside buffer, those only apply if an investor buys these products on day one. Otherwise, obviously, with uh, moves up and down in the markets, that upside cap and downside buffer will move as well. Um, is there anything that you would add to that? I know Innovator has built some great tools on the website. So if somebody wants to go and look at a particular ETF and see the remaining cap or, or buffer, that's all out there. I, anything else you would add? Yeah, I, you know, the, the, I think the defined nature of these products is really what helps sell them. You know, candidly, I think people like to like make that determination. Oh, a year from now, <clears throat> I think, you know, X, Y, or Z is going to happen. And so, um, so yeah, you're exactly right. It's, it's defined. And, um, you know, the, the way I always describe it is when you buy a bond, um, the coupon doesn't change, but what you pay for that coupon changes based on rates and, and, you know, other factors. It's the same thing here. You, you, you know what you're going to get at the end of the outcome period, but, but what you pay for that changes. And so it's, it's, it's very much just as defined the first day of the outcome period as it is six months into the outcome period. You, it's it's not not really any different. You're you're just kind of getting a, a, a stamp in time. But if, if you were to buy one six three months into the outcome period, it's the same thing. You know, it's just a different price, and you know exactly where you're going to end up. Uh, and so you're just paying something different for that amount. Um, so and you know we your point we we thought people would generally just buy them near or end at the end of the outcome periods but um we've really found people doing you know a lot of different things trading them in between and um you know so you 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 have the flexibility we've we've kind of created a a secondary market if you will for a a structured note outcome you know yeah and i should note the defined outcome products you offer they span not only the s p 500 uh, but also small caps the NASDAQ, you have a developed uh, international and emerging market equity products, and even a, a long-term U.S. Treasury products. Uh, but before I let you go, I have to ask you about the most recent product, which is this new hedge Tesla strategy ETF, ticker TSLH. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, the uh, introduction of single stock ETFs is probably one of the biggest ETF stories of 2022. I, I think it might end yeah. up at the top of the list. In your ETF, this yeah. offers exposure to the price of Tesla up to a cap, and then it actually has a max loss, so a floor of 10% each quarter, not including fees. Just briefly tell us about this one. Why Tesla, and how, how are you getting this exposure? Yeah, yeah, so like it's, it's, again, pretty straightforward. This one's unique in that it's actually a floor product. So most of ours are buffer, where you, you know, you're buffered for the first 15 or you know, 30%. This is actually, you cannot go down more than 10%. Um, if you buy it at the beginning of the outcome period, and it's quarterly, so so again, yeah, it's like, like many of our products. It's it's for the person that says, you know what, I I want to own or I I want to you know maintain exposure to Tesla, but I don't think it's going to have the uh, you know stratospheric returns that it has in the past. But 
uh, I want to maintain some exposure to it. And so, you know, you're basically putting guardrails on that product. And, and basically, it's very simple. It's how we do it. It's, it's, uh, it's treasuries, and then we buy, um, you know, a call option to, to gain you that exposure and then uh, and sell the call option, and that's what sell, uh, sets that cap. So very straightforward, uh, resets every quarter. And, you know, the, the, for when we just launched it, you know, a couple, two and a half months ago, the, the Tesla's up, I think, about, six or seven percent so it's underneath that cap and so um for the person that bought it when we first launched it you know you've participated one-to-one with tesla and but you've also had a 10 percent floor in place so as, so as long as tesla doesn't go up more than about 10 or so percent each quarter then uh you know you've you've kept pace with just owning tesla on its own but you've had a a 10 percent floor in place so um, so yeah, our, you know the other product, single stock products out there, I think are trying to gain you, you know, higher beta, more exposure. Uh, similar to other products, we're we're trying to reduce beta, reduce exposure, uh, but it's, but still allow you to to stay invested. Well, John, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, great to finally connect. Congratulations to yeah. you and the entire Innovator team on all of the success. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Mike. We appreciate. it. That was John Southerd, co-founder and president of Innovator ETFs. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Rich Kerner, Senior ETF Sales Specialist at Touchstone Investments, who back in July, just a couple of months ago, they entered the ETF space with a launch of the Touchstone Strategic Opportunities ETF, ticker SIO. They quickly followed that up with a launch of three additional ETFs, which we'll get into. So four ETFs in all, already nearly $200 million in assets, by the way. And uh, Rich is now on the line with me. Rich, welcome to the podcast. Nate, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. All right. So as I usually like to do, let's start with a little background because I'm guessing some of our listeners are uh, unfamiliar with Touchstone Investments. Just give us a quick snapshot of who you are and uh, why you decided to get involved with ETFs. Sure. No, thanks. Uh, So Touchstone Investments has been around since 1994. We've got about $25 billion in assets under management. With the addition, as you just mentioned, of our four ETFs, we now have 36 uh, mutual funds and ETFs. Um, our model is, uh, we think, unique. Uh, we work exclusively with institutional sub-advisors. Uh, we currently partner with 14 different sub-advisors to manage those 36 funds and ETFs. A uh, little bit, uh, almost half of those that are eligible for a track record, 13 of them are four and five our funds. Um, and so I, I think it's a great story that sometimes folks, you know, haven't heard. Uh, we are uh, owned by Western and Southern, uh, which is a Fortune 400 uh, mutual life insurance company uh, headquartered in, in Cincinnati as well. That's been around since 1888. So uh, we've got a very strong parent uh, that's really committed to the ETF business and being invested in the ETF business. And so the reason we got into ETFs is we've, you know, just like everyone else, we've seen this, you know, incredible flows uh, into the ETFs. Uh, we know from an asset management distribution standpoint, we want to have not only mutual funds, but also ETFs for our clients uh, to use. And, and certainly we're excited to bring our unique brand of active management, distinctively active, uh, to the ETF wrapper. 
your collaboration with sub advisors definitely jumped off the page at me as I was looking at, at Touchstone. Uh, why do you like that model? I know the goal here is to partner with best-in-class managers to sub-advise funds. What do you see as the value of doing that? Well, it's it's the way we've always done it. So when we started in 1994, um, one of our first partners was Westfield Capital Management, still one of our partners today. Uh, we just really believe that it's it's hard for one asset manager to be the very best in all the categories. It's hard to be a great large cap value manager and also a great large cap growth manager. And then, oh, by the way, what about small and mid caps and then international and you know the the list goes on and on. So when you're partnering with um, you know best in class institutional money managers who really have demonstrated long term success in implementing truly active strategies, um, we think it's a it's a great model. And oftentimes advisors and investors aren't able to typically access uh, a lot of these institutional money managers. So again, hard to be great in every asset class, and and we think this model uh, really really works well to to give you a competitive lineup across all. All asset classes. Okay, so I noted at the top the Touchstone Strategic Opportunities ETF ticker SIO. Let me tee up the other three products here. So there's the Touchstone Dividend Select ETF ticker DVND, the Touchstone US Large Cap Focused ETF ticker LCF, and then the uh, Touchstone Ultra Short Income ETF ticker TUSI. And certainly feel free to delve into any of these in detail, but I'd love to hear more about why these particular strategies coming out of the gate. Why these four ETFs? Sure. No, uh, great question. Um, all four of these products uh, are managed by Fort Washington Investment Advisors, which is also a subsidiary of Western and Southern. Um, Fort Washington uh, manages approximately $80 billion. It's been around since 1990. And I think most important for us, um, I tell advisors and clients all the time, when you're in Cincinnati and you're on the Touchstone Investments, we're on the 11th floor. Fort Washington Investment Advisors is on the 12th floor. So not only do they have a great long-term track record in each of these asset classes, but when you're launching your first ETFs, it's great to have, uh, you know, the connectivity with the folks, you know, right upstairs. So that's the reason we went with Fort Washington Investment Advisors to, uh, to launch our first products. And do you want to pick an ETF or two to maybe delve into in a bit more detail, just to give listeners an idea in terms of how you're approaching a particular market? Yeah, sure. So again, all of our strategies are um, distinctively active, and, and so I'd love to just spend a you know a minute on on distinctively active, and then just kind of talk about the equity and fixed income uh, ETFs uh, that that we offer. So folks often ask me, you know, what is distinctively active, and you know. In its simplest form, active means not passive or not cap-weighted indexing. And our distinctively active strategies are those that we've found have a historical track record of generating alpha and a high active share. And when I think, you know, when I talk to advisors uh, and their clients, I think there's a little bit more of, a, of an acceptance for active fixed income as, a, as an asset class being able to uh, deliver alpha. But uh, we also think you can find really good active managers on, on the equity side. Um, and a lot of equity strategies, I know, um, I think it was on last week's uh, podcast, you were, you were talking about the SPIVA results. You know, a lot of times when you start eliminating closet indexers or you eliminate, you know, large, you know, bloating, what we call bloating, you know, high AUM that eliminates a portfolio manager's ability to invest in the entire universe or, you know, just dilution with a lot of, you know, names, when you start eliminating some of those uh, characteristics from the active uh, manager universe, especially on the equity side, you then start to see that, you know, there is a really good track record uh, for active uh, managers. And so on the equity side, we launched two ETFs, as you mentioned. One is large cap focus. Um, this is uh, what I would you know, simply say is a kind of a moat uh, investment strategy. We're looking to build a portfolio uh, that's made up of businesses that have high sustainable barriers to entry with also high returns on capital and to buy these businesses at a discount to their intrinsic value um, and, and kind of own those names for, for a long period of time. And we think that's a, a great way to diversify investors' holdings, especially in that large cap space where so many folks tend to just 
you know, go to uh, go to an index. On the uh, dividend side, we're uh, we're excited not only by the ticker DVND, uh, which uh, we were excited to see was was available <laughs> and out there, but an active. There's not many actively managed uh, dividend strategies, and so. What this strategy does, it's actually sector neutral to the S&P 500, so it doesn't take on some of the traditional dividend ETF biases that can be you know, overweight to utilities and staples and healthcare and some of the other defensive names. And then, you know, as folks have probably seen this year, when you're, again, when you're sector neutral, you're not subject to you know, perhaps a day like, you know, last week in the market where certain sectors, energy are, are really under uh, under pressure because of the price of oil. So, you know, growing dividends, have it, having a, a product where you can, you know, exceed the S&P 500, but not sacrificing, uh, you know, broad capital market exposure by diving into just, you know, one or two, you know, sectors for big overweights, we think is a, is a great way to get uh, dividend exposure especially uh, in this environment. So uh, th- th- that's the story on the, on the equity side. Over on the fixed income side, we've got two products, the ultra short income, probably where we're spending most of our conversations because I think folks right now are looking for more income. They're looking to shorten up duration. Uh, we think this is a, this is a great strategy uh, for folks to take a look at. It always has a duration of less than one year, currently uh, about 0.6 right now. And we think this fits really well for what we call inside-out uh, investing. Uh, so, you know, uh, th- these are cash investors who might want a higher yield than what they're currently getting inside their money market fund. So they're willing to take on a little bit more risk. And then the sort of the outside in is folks who are looking at their core bond exposure this year, looking at uh, some negative returns in that area and thinking, okay, I want to shorten up duration, but I don't want to give up income. I don't want to give up uh, my total return. This is a strategy that, uh, when you go back and look at it over time, has actually been able to deliver about 80% of the Barclays Ag with about 20% of the risk. So really fits interestingly in this environment. And then finally, the first one we launched, Strategic Income Opportunity, SIO, is really our best idea of fixed income portfolio uh, from Fort Washington. I, I would put it in the multi-sector bond uh, category or the core plus-plus category. So, um, you know, up to 50% can be in non-investment grade. Um, it does have very specific guidelines on how much high yield or how much emerging market debt uh, it, can, it can own. You know, Fort Washington manages a little bit over uh, $50 billion in, in fixed income, so really a strength uh, with Fort Washington Investment Advisors. Rich, just a couple of minutes left. You mentioned the SPIVA scorecard that I covered last week. You, you were trying to get ahead of me here. You probably knew I was going to bring this topic up. But I, I do want to ask you, and I know this is a little bit of a, a cliche question around active management, but Look, I I know you're well aware of all the data that's out there showing how difficult it is for active managers to consistently generate outperformance. And and you alluded to this earlier. I mean, I look at uh, DVND and LCF. One thing that is clear on both of those, these are much higher active share, higher uh, conviction strategies. DVND, that can hold between 40 and 55 companies. Uh, LCF between 25 and 45. So I think that gives listeners a really good feel that th- these aren't closet index funds. But but is that really where the difference comes in? So if you have, you know, first Washington as a sub-advisor, these are higher conviction strategies. Is that what you think differentiates you from the market and gives you a shot at generating outperformance longer term? Because again, the, the data, we've all seen it. It is difficult to, to, to generate outperformance consistently over long periods of time. No, no. I, I think this is. I think this is the environment where folks are, uh, you know, expanding their opportunity set or product set to look, you know, all across um, and looking at, you know, more, you know, active uh, ETFs. In fact, I mean, you look at the first half of this year. Um, yes, yeah, still dominated uh, on the equity side. Still dominated by, you know, plain vanilla uh, ETFs. But you're starting to see, you know, active uh, ETFs. Gathering almost 15% of flows, uh, you know, through the first half of the year. So, I think folks are looking for, you know, high active share, high conviction strategies um, that they can use to, again, either complement a little bit to what they're doing on the, you know, on the passive side, uh, but really, you know, look for that demonstrated ability to outperform or protect a little bit more on the downside, especially with the volatility uh, that we've seen this year. Rich, before I let you go. 
Uh, what's next for Touchstone ETF? Should we expect more launches anytime soon? Obviously, you know, these four, you're off to a great start uh, just in terms of, you know, you look at the assets in these products. What, what should we ex- uh, expect moving forward? Well, listen, we're really excited to be uh, in the ETF space. We're excited about these first four products. Uh, and we are talking to all of uh, those sub-advisors that I mentioned about our ETF initiative. There's a lot of excitement, uh, you know, from the sub-advisors. But we're also looking at our entire product lineup and seeing where we do have gaps um, and thinking about perhaps when we launch a new product, uh, whether it be in some of the categories that we've seen growth this year or over the past couple of years, like thematic, uh, we're looking not only at the mutual fund wrapper, but also the, uh, the ETF wrapper. So a uh, lot of exciting things, uh, and I think you'll hear more from us uh, you know, later this year or into 2023. Well, Rich, greatly enjoy the conversation. Certainly wish you the best of luck with the ETF lineup. Thank you for joining me this week. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate being on. That was Rich Kerner, Senior ETF Sales Specialist at Touchstone Investments. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Capital Group. If you would like to learn more about Capital Group's ETFs, you can visit capitalgroup.com ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by Matt Pirro, who is Vanguard's Global Head of ESG Product. We're going to look at their ESG ETF lineup and discuss the uh, broader ESG landscape. I think everyone knows, always one of my favorite topics. So certainly uh, join me for that. Until then, have a great week, everyone.